Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Behind the Racket Pod. The podcast taking you behind the racket with today's top tennis players and biggest issues facing the sport. Behind the Racket is a community to give fans and players in the world of tennis the opportunity to open up like they have never done before. Visit BehindTheRacket.com for the latest stories, merch, as well as direct links to all of the latest podcasts. It can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, Pandora, Stitcher, and wherever you find your podcasts. Download the episodes and make sure to leave a review. And we want you to be a part of the conversation. Find me at NoahRubin33 or Mike at MikeCTennis on all forms of social media. You can also learn more at BehindTheRacket.com or MikeCTennis.com. Special thanks to my sponsor, New Balance. Visit their latest shoes and styles at NewBalance.com and learn more about their program of giving back at hashtag NBGivesBack. You can also help support the podcast by visiting Patreon.com slash BehindTheRacketPod and receive rewards from our travels around the world. And now... If you're listening to this episode, I'm sure you're probably wondering why you don't hear the normal, sultry voice of Mike Cation and the always cheerful Noah Rubin. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know how you want to look at it, I, Chris Eubanks, will be filling in on this episode of Behind the Racket, and I'm excited to bring to you a very, very special guest. Uh, One of the most important things I think about this platform that was created by Noah and Mike is that it allows for a broader audience to hear the stories of players or, or people that they might not ordinarily hear from. This episode is no different. I'm joined by a very accomplished player in his own right, a player who at the tender age of 27 has amassed 19 professional titles. We're hoping to make it 20 as he's going to carry me in doubles this week at the Indy Challenger and actually just won a doubles title last year at the Rome Challenger with last week's guest, Andrew Harris. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please help me in welcoming Enzo Quaco to the BTR podcast. Enzo, how are you, man? All good, Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Oh, man. Thanks for joining us. Um, I think it'd probably just be easiest. I've never done this before. This is my first time kind of hosting by myself. I, I helped Mike out one other time. So I'm just going to kind of wing it. We're going to see how it goes. So I think easiest uh, place to start would be kind of your background. Born in Mauritius, correct? Yeah, born and raised there. Um, I lived there until I was about 14, I reckon. Okay. Um, and then obviously, if you want to be an athlete, you have to make the choice to go away. So there's not much there on the island, uh, right. tennis-wise. So yeah, I moved to France at that at that time. Okay, okay. So you moved to France, and then how did you get started in tennis? So I'm guessing you started at home in Mauritius, and then kind of progressed and realized that you were gonna, I guess, outgrow the beautiful island uh, and yeah. needed to kind of get something else. Was it more of a training thing, or you just wanted maybe to be able to compete in Europe and play more tournaments? What what kind of sparked, or, or what was the, I guess, besides just trying to get out of there and find better competition? Was it more of a training thing? Did you? Speak to the French Federation. Um, How did it come about? No, honestly, it was a bit out of the blue kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I grew up there. I started playing there. Uh, my brother used to play, my dad as well. So it was a bit of a family thing. Okay. And then uh, my dad used to run a hotel company. So they had the Muratoglu preseason uh, going to Australia there Okay. every year uh, for a couple of years. So I did one of those uh, training camps with them. About how old were you? 
Uh, I was around 13 or 14. I think okay. it was in 2009 um, okay. back then. So, yeah, I did that with them. And then um, Patrick offered me to, to go to, the, to his academy around Paris to train. Um, and I just thought at the time that it would have been a different experience. Like, I didn't have any intention of going pro. At that time in Mauritius, I wasn't training like a pro. I was just, uh, I was going to regular school and, really? and uh, yeah, playing more golf and like <laughs> other things in tennis. And Patrick offered me to go there and I thought, yeah, I mean, why not? Like going to Europe could be a big thing. Uh, but it was, a, it was more about a life experience than actually trying to go pro, right? So wow. okay. I spent a year and a half there. And then when I was 16, um, I wanted to go back home to get my studies right and have like the regular curse of life and whatever. And then um, during that summer, I became European champion, French champion, and I won pretty much everything I was playing. So then I was like, oh, well, maybe I'm going to want to give that a shot. You know? oh. <laughs> so okay. yeah, everything was just, it just matched up. But it, it just kind of happened organically. It yeah. wasn't like you weren't a, a kid who kind of said, you know, my goal is to be a professional no. tennis player. No, I've never just had kinda, that. Everything just kind of came about very, yeah, very I've organically. I've never had that. So as you even talked about, you progressed pretty quickly through the I, the junior ranks ITF. I know I think you finished like top 60 for three years, which for the the listeners who don't know, that's very, very difficult to do because that means you started at a very young age and you excelled in under 18s at a very young age, maybe between 15 and 16. And for three consecutive years, continuing to have a year in ranking inside the top 60, I think your career high was like inside the top 20 uh, ITF. Like something like that, 17. Yeah. yeah, something like um, that. And I think the craziest thing for me, one of the most impressive things is that the same year that you had your career high ranking, you also ended that year, I believe, ranked around 700 ATP, which means you're kind of playing a healthy balance of ITF juniors and professional events in order to get that high of a ranking. Was there a bit of an adjustment period that you had to uh, kind of go through going from being one of the top dogs in the ITF to then going to futures? And I'm sure the, the less uh, glamorous side of kind of just starting out professional tennis. Were there any things that you kind of felt tennis-wise that was a big adjustment for you jumping into futures, or was it just kind of all happening very naturally? No, it was happening pretty naturally. I have to say I was pretty lucky to uh, um, not really have that grind that people can have going into futures. Even when I was at that age, I remember I think it was my third event or fourth ITF event that I made qualies and won it. Uh, so I won a couple of futures really early into it. So I didn't have to really battle through the qualies or the rough stages of that of that kind of lifestyle. So, um, yeah, I was just playing juniors because for me it was always a great experience to play those slams and play the big tournaments. But also after the juniors, you also had to get on tour. So I was thinking if I can get a head start and get some points here and there, then it would be the transition after juniors would be easier. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think I said when you were... Around your career high junior ranking, I believe then you were 700. But by the end of that year, which was 2013, you had cracked just inside the top 500. By the next year, you had cut that in half and ended 2014 at around top 250. So at around what age? I'm guessing that's around 17 or, eight, or 18. Yeah, that was 19. around 18 or 19, something like that. Yeah. 18 and 19, being inside the top 250 is a very, very impressive uh, feat. Did you see a bigger adjustment playing more challengers as opposed to futures? Or again, has your the entire trajectory of your tennis career just kind of happened and been very organic? Um, well, I'll sound really lucky, but uh, yeah, it just happened. Um, I was playing Futures. I remember playing pretty good in Futures. And, uh, and then I got a couple of wild cards and challenges, and I made a couple of semis beating a couple of top 100 guys. And then, yeah, things just 
uh, happened pretty naturally. Um, and then after that, uh, I remember I was supposed to come to the the whole trip in the U.S. Chalice indoors in in, in at in, the end of the year yeah, in okay. America. I think it was like October or yeah, September, or something, like it's, Charlottesville it's, and all these things. Yeah, so that's around the middle of October, yeah. second maybe third week of October into I believe the second week of November. So about yeah, three so I remember the week before that I played Rennes, which is a French challenger. Um, I had a, p- a pretty good week there, and during the quarters I played Robin Aze, and we had a terrific match like we start, we we started at like 11 p.m. we finished at like 3 in the morning or something it was it was epic i won that one 6th and the 3rd is indoors yeah but it was <laughs> super slow indoors though okay, we played okay, for like okay. three and a half hours okay and um yeah so i remember feeling feeling like absolutely devastated after that match i was super tired and the next day i woke up and i was injured i didn't feel it on the time mm-hmm. because i mean i was battling through it but yeah, the next day I couldn't play. I was supposed to play Nicolas Mahout, and uh, I just pulled out after two games. I, I legit couldn't play. And after that, I had like eight or nine weeks off. And at the time, I didn't realize that it was just the start of a whole circle of, of injuries um, that kind of slowed me down, yeah. And th- those injuries happened over, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was about four years, I think, of kind of on and off from 2014 when you were kind of sitting at around that 250 rank to – I think 15 and 16, you can kind of see the rankings slowly start to drop. I think we, we can we know that's not play related, but probably more health related. So I think yeah, you for the first two years, it was it was on and off. Okay. Um, and then the last two years was completely off, uh, completely off. Yeah, I had my first surgery, um, I think was in 2018, if I'm not wrong. And that was 11 months off. So that was, yeah, for a full year, completely out. And I. If my memory is right, I think that first surgery was in June, like the 4th or 5th of June of 2018. And I had a second surgery, like the 2nd of June, 2019. Really? So, and that was four months, out, four or five months off again. So that was about yeah, 15 or 16 months completely off with playing maybe a month or two in between the two injuries. But yeah, so that was, that was completely out of the, uh, of the tour and out of tennis. So during that time, I think a, a lot of players, because yours seemed to happen organically, and you even made it a point to say that around 15 or 16, you wanted to kind of go home to kind of focus on your studies. Did the idea of college tennis come about? We spoke about it a few weeks ago, and, and we were actually practicing at Georgia Tech before the Rome Challenger, and you were taking a look at the facility, and you said, man, this is, this is a really, really nice college tennis facility. And I said, yeah, we have one of, one of the best, but this is kind of what you'll see in the U.S. for college tennis. Did yeah. the thought of saying – Maybe college would have been a, a good route. Did you even think of that, or, or? Oh, completely? Now that I look back, um, it's one of the one of the few regrets I have. Uh, I don't have much because I always try to make the best decision with the information that I have at the time. At the time, one hundred percent. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. Yeah, and yeah. then maybe a couple of years later, I'll look back and say, "Oh, maybe I should have done this or that different." But at the time, with what I knew, um, I wanted to go to college. Actually, around eighteen. Um, and uh, the only thing is, when I was 18 in Europe, we didn't have much, like, contacts to reach out to get to college, right? So it was a bit you on your own, try to shoot messages on Instagram, whatever. But when you're 18 and you have no one to actually talk you through it and tell you how it's going to be, you just have this image of, yeah, college is great, but that's all you know. Like, you don't know who do you have to reach out to, which schools are good, how does it, how the system works. You have no idea about anything. So uh, I reached out to a couple of colleges, and uh, we were in talks. And, well, after that, during that summer, I played 
pretty well, pretty well and honestly, I made a bit yeah. of money and they explained to me that rule that if you make a certain amount of money you're not allowed to go into college so yeah it didn't happen and at the time I was not really concerned about it because I was playing really well my ranking was going up pretty fast so I was like I have a shot at being on tour in a year or so so that's fine with me yeah but now that I look back yeah I would I would advise people to go to college yeah I, I would agree I think that obviously I don't think that every case is black and white I exactly. think that yeah. There are certain certain instances in which, you know what, you might be better off just to go ahead and bypass in college. I think that that is a small select few. Yeah. Um, and obviously there are other things to factor in. There are certain people who might have the resources to maybe jump out on tour and be able to have a professional team and are going to go about things in a professional manner. But I do think because the game has evolved so much and it's become so much more physical, guys aren't winning slams at 17 and 18 and 19 like they did in previous generations. So giving yourself that extra time, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think exactly. a and lot I, of times people kind of feel as though college, once you go to college, your dreams of being professional are gone. It's like, no, there's exactly, still yeah. more and more avenues. And we're seeing it with guys who are going to college and are doing extremely well even now. So yeah. we're seeing it. Obviously, Cam Norrie might be the biggest example, but we also have guys like Mackie McDonald for Cisco Serendolo, who's been playing some unbelievable ball in the past few weeks. Maxim Cressy just took a title. So there's so many different pathways, and I don't see why colleges, I guess, frowned upon um, in certain certain respects. I think it's starting to change, but I definitely think college is a great, great avenue to kind of help you develop and, for one, guarantee you more matches almost every week. You know, you're going to get two singles matches, two doubles matches for the most part in the whole spring, what's, what's wrong with, you know, getting matches against high-quality players? Exactly, and I think our generation um, was kind of the transition because everyone was scared that you should get out of college at 24 while you only have a couple more years to play, which today is not true anymore. Maybe 100%. it was 30 years ago, but yep. today it's not true. And I think unless you're one of the very best in the world and you're on the path to winning slams or whatever, but if you're any anywhere good as a tennis player – we have a lot of examples, but getting on the tour around 24 or 23 or even 22, you're more mature and more ready to not make all the mistakes that you would have made going on the tour at 17, like a lot of guys used to, which is why usually um, most of the college guys that go on tour now that are successful are not making like scheduling mistakes or, or any of the rookie mistakes you could make yep. when you're 18. And I think it's a it's a really good call uh, today to go through college and have that experience in of high quality matches, uh, high tension matches, because yep. sometimes with a crowd, it can get a bit hectic. And then when you go on tour, it just looks easy because you don't have that much going against you. And I think I think one of the the biggest things, at least for me and I think for everybody's situation, is different. so yours is obviously very, very unique. You didn't really think that much about uh, professional tennis until the results started to come. I was similar in some ways when I was younger. I always said, I want to be a pro. I want to be a pro. But I didn't really realize what it took to be a pro. I just knew that's what I was always doing. So that's what I wanted, you know, my career to be. And then as I got older, I started to kind of compare myself to other players who were my age who were doing far better. And I go, well, this college thing is probably going to be the best route. And then college is kind of what really, I think, enhanced my development. But also not just that. I think in terms of, I think you highlighted maturity. I highlighted the match play. But also understanding your body is something that's yeah. huge. You have one of the, when you go to college, you have an entire athletic department or training staff that is devoted for the student athlete and getting if there's any little uh, nicks or twinges in the body that might be a little bit uh, bothersome. 
college is a great time to say, you know what, in juniors, I've had this problem with my knee or this problem with my foot. Let's go to college. Let's get this thing fixed for free. Let's exactly. play some matches. Let's yeah. buy myself some time. So all of that isn't on me when I'm coming out and want to be pro at 18 and I have to go to Tunisia for futures, but I'm having this problem in my foot that could have been fixed for free by doing a year or two in college. Like I think the medical support that's there is also something that kind of gets overlooked for a lot of players who might come out of college or even are trying to progress through June, uh, futures and challenges always with little injuries yeah. and struggling to really break through. That's something that I think gets missed a lot. Um, yeah, completely. And, and especially, I mean, we have to face it. If you're going to go on futures around 18 and 19, you'd, well, you can rely on your family, but you're not going to have the funding 100%. to go and travel with a physio, with an athletic trainer, with that 100%. kind of stuff. So all the things that you can learn with that uh, staff that you'll have around you in college can help you for the for the years to come, for sure. A thousand percent. Um, I think in 2019, or maybe it was 2020, you cracked inside the top 200 for the first time. After dealing with all of those injuries that you had kind of battled for years, kind of, like you said, months on, months off, still kind of questioning whether or not college was the right play, did you feel a sense of relief when you kind of got inside that top 200? Because I, I everyone always talks about the top 100, um, and obviously that's a huge benchmark. I think I'm, I'm striving to get there. I'm sure you are as well, and then you can kind of reassess and reevaluate what your next goals are going to be. But I can remember when I kind of got past that page on the rankings where I didn't have to scroll down another, where it was, you know, I only had to go down past 100 and I could see my name around the 190s, 180s. It kind of, you felt a little, a, a sense of, okay, I'm not that far off. I'm really, I'm playing well. Did you have a little bit of sense of that, especially dealing with the injuries that you it, um, dealt with before, kind of getting back inside the top 200 to a career high? How did that, did that make you feel any, sense of relief, okay, I'm back, I'm playing well, or were you still like, you know what, there's more to be done? Um, uh, that, that, that's a tricky question, because even on the way back, I remember when I started playing after the second injury, um, the, the second sur surgery, uh, it's at the time where they introduced the two rankings, the ITF oh, and the ATP transition rankings. Tour. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And I remember at that time, I only had like uh, future points, which was ITF points. So right. my ranking was decent. It was like 280 or 290 or something. But it was only future points. So in the new rankings, I would have been high in the ITF ranking. But the right. ATP ranking, I would have been nowhere to be found. And I remember at that time, uh, I was with another coach. And I told him, look, it's the summer. There's some nice challenges. I just want to play a couple of challenger events just to, you know, like reward myself from what I've been through. And then I'll try to get the ranking back up after that. But let's have some fun for the next couple of weeks. And he was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And I remember I played Cassie yeah. uh, like two weeks later. And so I had zero ATP points and I, and I went qualified winner. Really? And I won it. And then I was like, oh, I might play some ATP tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, things just happened. And then uh, obviously I was playing well, but yeah. I was nowhere near expecting um, winning that challenger. And um, after that, yeah, I wouldn't say relief. You're always happy to see your name going up in the rankings. Mm -hmm. But it's it's such a long way to go. We have seen so many examples that of players that won't even get injured but just struggle to win and start to overthink it. And things just go from, from bad to worse in, in, in that area. So it's the way to go is still super long. Um, I think from 180 to, to 100, there's not that big of a level difference, but there's a lot of matches to be won. There's a lot of matches to be won. Yeah. I think mentally is probably one of the biggest things, being able to dig in, you know, week in and week out. And yeah. and a lot of times the guys, like you say, the 180 to 100s, the 
what was very interesting for me is when I, the first year I came out, so I turned pro in 2017, and I believe I played two challengers in Mexico, and I was ranked around um, maybe like 290 coming into March. And I finaled a challenger, and I won a challenger back-to-back. I think I went from 290 to 180 in two weeks. Yeah. And I go, oh, you just win two challenges, and, you you know, you, you go up 100 spots. No. And then you get to 180, and you realize, oh, to go that 180 to 100, I have to more. have, like, two of those two weeks. Yeah. I need to put together, like, two weeks in which I win final, win, win, or final, final. Like, and it kind of gets, oh, okay, well, things are getting a little bit harder. And then because it's the first year on tour, I didn't under- really understand – Defending points, the weeks come back around. Fifty-two weeks later, one of the tournaments gets canceled, so I have no chance to defend. And then I go from hovering around the one sixty, one fifty mark to I think outside of two hundred, just be, just like that. And I go, okay, so th- th- those those you know one or two round wins and the challenges don't mean nearly as much when you're one seventy as they did when you were three hundred. Exactly, those one yeah. or two challenger wins can boost you up twenty, thirty spots. Okay, now I'm starting to see what the tour is like. I see why the, this jump. From inside 200 to 100 is so big, and it's it's a you know pretty big milestone for a lot of players. Yeah, this year, um, well, like I said, 2019, you got inside the top 200, and like you say, it, it, that next jump kind of can take a while. But this year in particular, you had a really really good run at Wimbledon. We talked, we yeah. spoke about it in Atlanta. You you played some very very good ball and qualities of Wimbledon got through I believe only dropping one set I think you won your first two in straights and then I believe you lost one set in last round qualities is that correct or I think I lost yeah I lost a set to Emilio Gomez in the first round qualities. first round okay and then I dropped a set against Kuzmanov in the last round yeah okay so losing two sets in qualities um going through to then playing John Isner yeah. in five sets at Wimbledon I think what a, what a lot of people don't realize is that you know on paper that might look like well, you know, how do you go five sets on grass? Grass is fast. John is, you know, seven feet with a big serve. But I don't think they understand the grass is a little bit slower. It's a little bit lower bouncing. And for a guy like you who has incredible timing and incredible hands, you can make things very, very difficult for a big guy on grass because of your ability to kind of, when you are able to neutralize returns, put the ball low, make him have to dig balls out. And for the most part, like you were holding serve pretty consistently, I believe, throughout the whole course of the match because yeah. it's a little bit tougher to return, especially for big guys. What was that experience like? Was that your second time in a Grand Slam main draw? Yeah, that was the second time. The first time was at French uh, last year. Um, it was a great experience. Uh, honestly, it was on a nice court. Obviously, uh, he scored where he's had the record uh, of the longest match. Same court yeah. with against Nico. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So he's he spent some time there, but no, it was it was obviously great um, to especially to qualify through it because when you get a wild card, you always feel like okay, my previous weeks or months or year got me to in a position where I could deserve that wild card. But when you just qualify, it's just like, okay, I didn't need anybody else. I just did it on my 100%. own. So the, the feeling is a bit different. 100%. Um, so it was nice to it, w- it was nice to do that, obviously. And then against John, yeah, it was it was a battle. Um, even though like, how big he serves, I was still able to get two sets off of him, which I kind of like as a performance. Yes. Um, but, yeah, it was – obviously, I wish uh, I played that second round against uh, Andy Murray. But, yeah, it was a close call. It was a battle. And, um, yeah, when you're 200 in the world, you're like, okay, I can battle with these guys. And then it's just a matter of repeating that effort week in, week out, and, and getting the rankings back up. I think um, – and, and we'll, we'll come to a close around here. But 
we're in, in a very, very unique time in tennis history in general. I think obviously it's, it's no secret we're coming to the end of one of the greatest eras in tennis. And that's even if you take out, obviously, the, the goats of Rafa, Roger, Novak, Andy still still around, um, Stan is still around. But specifically for French tennis, I think growing up, at least in the U.S., we always, I always would kind of look at the, the French guys. They seem to have, and this is before I even became on tour, but they seem to have a good sense of camaraderie. It's like a good group. It was always the group of Gael, Joe, Gilles, Richard, like Nico uh, was around there for a good bit. Had the guys to kind of retire, like the Benetos and yeah. the and the Lodras and those guys before them. But specifically in France, I would love to get a feel on what have those guys meant to French tennis? Because in the U.S., we can look at it and say, oh, you know, the French are so talented. They, the crowds at Roland Garros, when the French players are playing, they look amazing on TV. But for those who, who grew up with, you know, in the same country or, or seeing that their impact on French tennis as we're coming to an end of this generation of those guys, what have they meant at least to you specifically? Or what do you think they've meant to French tennis as a whole? Um, they meant a lot, obviously. Um, I just think that they've been unfairly criticized for a while um, because they were always, well, French people like to, you know, not be happy in general. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they were criticized a lot about not winning slams. Uh, but, I mean, we have to admit, in that generation of guys you quoted, there's not many people who want slams. Man, you are, I mean, that, the Americans get the same rap, and it's so frustrating. It, is, it, it so really I can is, imagine. because it was a, an outstanding generation. They were both, I mean, I, I'm thinking about Gail and Joe, but there was also Richard and, uh, and Gilles. They were all top 10 at some point. And I think there was a year or two where we had like four guys in the top 15, which is insane. Mm -hmm. But everyone remembers them in France, at least. Um, yeah, these guys... Ever since Noah, they don't know how to win. They didn't win slams. They didn't win this. They didn't win that. But, God, winning a slam against Rafa at, at, at French or, I mean, Novak on, on hard or Roger at Wimby, there's not many people who did that. A thousand and percent. They doesn't mean they didn't have a terrific career. They did. But I just wish uh, back home they would have been a bit more appreciated for the level they've had, especially the consistency. I mean, they've been top 20 for as long as I can remember. They right. just started to drop since COVID, but Gail has been top 15 or top 20 for like almost 10 years in a row. I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, there's some absurd stat, like Gail has a title or a Every final year, in the yeah. past like 15 or 16 yeah. years, something crazy like yeah, that. Yeah, he has a title for the last 15 years. And everyone and, and people will look at that and say, you know what, God just didn't have it. Just yeah, didn't do enough. He, no, he, he should have won he, slam. He, he, didn't want, mean, he didn't want it. He didn't want it. And it's like, I think what happens a lot of times, and I, I, I think it's some degree human nature, but... People take greatness for granted. Yeah. You go back and you look at previous generations and and, and you could see there was a, the slams kind of, they were dispersed a little bit. You know, you, you had certain guys who you knew would have good chances at the French. Certain guys would have great chances at Wimbledon. Certain guys, U.S., Aussie. Like there were, it was almost like a seasonal thing. So you yeah. can kind of sprinkle it around. But all of a sudden we've been in the greatest generation of tennis in which three, four, five guys have absolutely dominated the grand slams how can we sit up there and look at things from a macro perspective and say, you know what? I think that, you know, French tennis, they just, they didn't have what the generation before them had. They, they didn't, they didn't want it bad enough or, or American tennis guys, just everyone's just big, sir, big four. They don't have any variety. Why can't we win slams? Why is, why is, well, you know, there's, there's a couple of reasons you can name them Roger, Rafa, Novak. 100%. And, and I mean, 
they, these guys are just better. They're just a different breed. And to be honest, um, I- even that uh, Davis Cup final against Switzerland was this whole controversy. Yeah, it, we were at home. We should have won. I mean, take a look on the paper. You were playing Roger, Roger and Stan. And right. Stan. <laughs> and, in, and I mean, maybe they don't play doubles throughout the year, but you put these guys in doubles, they're winning 20 slams. Yeah. Like, no disrespect to doubles players. It's just these guys are phenomenal tennis players in general. And if they got their mind to it and wanted to play doubles on a regular thing, they have the level to win slams as well. And then not not even just win slams, but there's also something you can see in team events that raises everybody's level. So if yeah. you take two of the greatest players to ever play the game, you put them in a team environment where they're almost like the villains and, and you know, the away team and everyone is against them. That just makes them dangerous. It makes them even more dangerous. Yeah, we exactly. see some of the best tennis we see during Davis Cup from players. We see some of the best tennis we see in Labor Cup, these team events, ATP Cup. This year in uh, Australia, Romance of Fulin was balling for Russia. Yeah. And look it's like Amber, he beat Daniel as well. hundred percent. I mean, things happen, and I mean, look at these two guys. French had uh, Stan had won the French like year before or that same year or something, and yet they were like, "Oh yeah, I mean, we lost to Switzerland. It's not a great tennis nation." Like guys, <laughs> look at okay, maybe the number three and number four players were not as good as everybody else were competing, but I mean, you you can play with two guys. <laughs> you can two doubles. You can one hundred percent. When those two guys are Roger and Stan, well, good luck beating them. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. That's amazing that they, uh, because I think just my, my perspective has always been based in the U.S. and hearing a lot of the talk on, you know, the Americans whether guys want to criticize John or criticize Sam, even criticize Jack or look at the talent they have, look at the the athletics of their ability to play. Why can they put it together for some weeks but not, you know, how the other guys do it? I was like, well, what? these other guys have done has been absolutely maybe it's because we're players so we know what it's like and we understand it but from the outside looking in you're looking at well if roger could do it why couldn't anyone else it's like come on now like let's let's be honest here like these guys are are otherworldly and we're going to sit sit here and criticize players who have been very very good for a very very long time and i think that's the part that also gets missed is these weren't hot streaks of three or four years france even in the, we, there's been depth for years yeah. and like that has to take into account that has to show for something where you can't sit up here and just disregard the, the successes of those players. Like Joe making what, when winning two matches, 1000, uh, Gail semiing a couple, uh, slams, Rashad having the career that he's had Jill's being eight in the world. It's funny at Wimbledon this year, I got to practice with Jill's and right after practice, we stood on the court as we were packing our bags and we talked for about 20 or 30 minutes, just about tennis matchups, yeah, everything. He, he can talk about tennis. It was, and then we got in the car. We waited on transportation for about 10 to 15 minutes. We continued to talk. We said, Jules, you want to share the car as we go back to Roehampton? He's like, yeah. We talked for probably about an hour, strictly tennis, matchup-wise, his game style versus his perception of how he sees the game. And it was one of the, one of the most enlightening things and the most fun conversations I've ever had related to tennis. And I go, I see how this guy got to eight in the world. Immediately, I go back to the hotel. I start pulling up some of his best highlights, and yeah. I go, I see what he's talking about. Like, this is really cool. But he's a guy that gets overlooked a lot. Yeah. Um, and realizing, oh, this guy was eight in the world. Like, there's yeah, a reason. That's, that, that, that's one thing, I think. Um, obviously, the top guys did a great of good things. A lot of good things for the for our sport. They, they, brought, they brought it to a whole new level of competing, of, of, of fame, of everything. But they also have, like, the downside of it, which is most people who don't know about tennis or who are not into tennis think that that kind of success is normal. It's normal, it's and it's be, not. 
is what should be expected from players. A hundred percent. And it's like, come no on, way. guys, that is not normal. <laughs> no way. That it's is not, not normal. There's, there was a time in which Pete having a 14 slams seemed unbreakable. Unbeatable. And now we have three guys in the same era to do that. At the same exact time. There are four slams in a year. Yeah. Three guys. At the same, playing at the same time. Like, like, come on. Like, let's just, let's, I mean, I feel like we could go on and on to talk about this yeah. all day just because I think we Fish both. It's insane, have, but I, I just wish, like, outside of tennis people could understand that this is not normal. A hundred percent. This is probably not going to happen again. I mean, we always, we said that about Pete, but, and then this happened, but there's a good chance that this never happens again. Three, three guys in the same era that have three different specialties. Like, we could say Novak on hard, Roger on clay, on, on grass, and Rafa on clay. And it just fits. They're all threats to win it every once. So, yeah. You know, besides, I mean, obviously, without uh, for so long, Roger was the second best clay quarter in the world, and everyone's like, "Ah, hey, Roger just doesn't have it on clay." It's like, do you see the guy he's going up against right now? Yeah. Like, and everyone said, uh, I'm, "I'm pretty sure you remember that," but everyone said, "Oh, Rafa is just too far out of the of, of the baseline. He's never going to win on grass. Never going to, yeah." <laughs> how many Wimby did he win? Like, yeah, it's just crazy how these guys went against the odds and just proved everyone wrong year in and year out. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's just phenomenal. Um, I, we could go on and on about that. I feel like that type of stuff all day. I want to kind of get into one last thing, uh, which kind of surprised me a little bit when we, when we practiced in Atlanta, we went over to the basketball arena and I got at Georgia tech and I got to uh, show you around and, and show you what a college basketball arena looks like. Turns out you're a massive NBA fan. Yeah. How and when did that come about? And I, I'm just curious, you, you said that, you try to stay up and watch the games during the playoffs, regular season. You say, you know what, to hell with it. I'm not. I'm not going to be up at three a.m. Yeah, exactly. For the it's, it's a bit thirty too hard. second yeah. game of the season. But how did that come about? A love for the NBA. Um, I always loved uh, team sports. Uh, I always loved sports in general, but especially team sports. And I remember when I was uh, battling through injuries, I went for a long trip in Asia uh, with Evan Song. Okay. Actually, uh, I'm pretty sure you know him. I do, I do. Uh, so we went in Asia, and yeah, the, the, the NBA games were early in the morning there because of the jet lag and time difference. Right. It was at like 8 or 7.30 in the morning. So we we're just watching all the NBA games, and then, I don't know, I just kind of rolled into it. I started to appreciate the fact that there's always something going on. It's it's a show sport, like compared to soccer in Europe. Yeah. You can <laughs> spend 90 minutes in front of the TV and nothing happens. You just have a commercial at the, at the halftime and that's it. Right. And NBA, you know that even if it doesn't matter, even if it's a game that is irrelevant, there's always, it's, it's, it keeps going back and forth. It's, it's, a, it's a show, yeah. I, especially in, in the States. Yeah. Um, so these guys always like put the effort in and uh, it's, it's, it's always nice to see. So I got in. I got into that a couple of years ago, and then I started to follow uh, even more. Um, so yeah, it just just happened a couple of years ago. And you said you'd never been to an NBA game, correct? Correct. I haven't okay. been yet. So what we're, what we're going to do? We're going to issue an open invite to anyone who's listening who might have connections to an NBA game. Probably, let's see, during the. I mean, Lakers, Indian Wells, somewhere, maybe one of yeah, the Clippers or Lakers season, game I'm, before. I'm, I'm probably coming back after the U.S. to play those, uh, the swing of challenges in, in the States. Okay. okay. Um, so, yeah, honestly, that would be that would be huge. Any help or any connections and being able to get a couple tickets to an NBA game would be greatly appreciated. And if no one is able to come up, I will do – I'm issuing a promise here. If it comes around in Knoxville and I'm in Atlanta – We'll go to a Hawks game. I'll get tickets. Right. I'll try to call around. I'll do whatever I got to do. But the fact that you, you're a big NBA fan, you've never been to an NBA game, 
I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure we can at least go check out a Hawks game when if schedules align and travel right. and everything works out. And we, we'd love to be able to kind of get you out there so you can fully see it. It's funny, one last thing. This year in Dallas, we got to, after my first round qualities, the Hawks were playing the Mavs in Dallas. At the moment I come off the court, they go, hey, Chris, one of the, the sponsors has tickets. Would you want to go? I said, absolutely. I'll be, I can be ready in an hour. So go to the Hawks game. I'm sorry, the Mavs game <laughs> versus the Hawks. And a few other players were there as well. And when we came back, this is when I got a perception on um, – or I got to hear some of the, the European players' perception on American sports, specifically the Germans. One of the German coaches said, when I go to sport, I want to see sport. I want to see guys absolutely trying to kill each other. I don't want to see a dog come out at halftime and jumping through hula hoops. What is this? He goes, they're coming out firing T-shirts into the stands. What is this? He goes, I'm used to football when fans are dying to kill each other, where it's warfare out there. And, and so – and I'm trying to explain to him, I go, well, it's, it's, it's an experience. You want to bring your kids and ha let them have a good time, get them to play with the mascot. And to him, the, the idea of sport was so different to what uh, I have been accustomed to in the U.S. Like in the U.S., it's a show. It's a production. It's, yeah, you know, the exactly. game takes place, but we want everyone to have a good time. We want it to be a memorable. You get your pictures with your family. Yeah, there's a whole thing around the game. There's a yeah. whole thing around it. And, yeah. and his idea of sport was, I'm coming to see that game. I'm coming to see these teams try to kill each other. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not and, coming and, for a beer. And, yeah. And, yeah, I'm not coming yeah. for a beer. I want, I want to see fans fight in the stands. I want the passion. That's what I want. So that's when I kind of said, oh, okay, well, there's a, a difference in, in how uh, we do things in America in terms of sport. But I would love to be able to take you to an NBA game, show you, insane. and kind of get your perception and your idea of what do you think uh, hopefully an Atlanta Hawks game looks like and if it's something that you want to do even more in the yeah, future. of course, and it's one thing I really like about the NBA is like these guys have a an ability of just you know with the home and away games, uh, you can have a lot of people against you, and it's like a whole different mindset, right? Yep. It's like in tennis, I see a bunch of guys that if someone just stands up in the stands, they, 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 they everyone just, has to stop. It's yeah, like, hey, they, they just no, won't no, no, play. Like, you have to behave. You have to do. And I'm like, guys, like I really enjoy that. You know that um, like home and away kind yep. of disturbance to the game yeah, like yeah. i remember in the in, in the finals uh the whole boston crowd going with the effort to yeah, yeah. and you're like i mean dude you have one guy in the stand saying oh you're getting tight you think about it so yeah, yeah. picture 30 30,000 people going like that at you yeah and you still have to come up with a performance to win the nba finals yeah and that's just not only about basketball it's only about a mental effort a mental toughness and these guys have to come up with it. And yeah. I remember when I played John, like obviously the US crowd is a bit different than Europe than yeah. what we have in Europe. And I was playing John and we got to like, uh, I think it was the third set or something. Uh, yeah, because I won the first, lost the second. Uh, yeah, it, it was the third set. So he was 30 love up in his service game. I came back and I had a break point at 30, 40. And uh, mm -hmm. there's a guy, so I went to my towel and there's a guy that, that spoke to me and, and he said, uh, don't choke this time. You know, and I was like... An American fan. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like, I actually like that. Yeah. So then I picked the right side, I hit a return winner, and I looked at him and I was like, I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and you have that. And if you take it that way, it's just fun. Yeah. It's like a fun competition. Like, he's not going to disrespect you anywhere or anything. It's yeah. just a little back and forth. It's a little back and forth. Kind of game. But I think that just brings a bit of spice into the game. And that's kind of what we're lacking in tennis, I feel yeah. like. Because, yeah, if somebody talks, or the whole play is suspended. At some point, 
come on. It we has got, to be a little bit hostile. Yeah. Like, there, there's nothing wrong with that. One of one of the, the, the one the stories that come to mind for me of a quote unquote hostile environment was one of I believe my sophomore year. We Georgia Tech played University of Georgia in Athens. And I don't know if you know much about UGA, but they have a rich tennis history, national championships, and they take their tennis very seriously. We're playing them indoors, and as you know, in college, there's multiple matches going on at the same time. So yeah. when you're in a college atmosphere, you kind of t- you, you tune everything else out because there's fans cheering for court two or cheering for court four at the same time as you're about to serve, so you don't really stop. But I remember I was playing a guy, I don't know if you remember him, named Wayne Montgomery from South yeah. Africa. Yeah, completely. So yeah. I'm playing Wayne, and we're playing indoors. We play a long point. I can't remember who won it, and I just remember a Georgia fan going, that's all right, Wayne. Run those skinny legs in a nice, deep southern accent. And I ignored it. I kind of toweled off. I think people started laughing, and I think I won the next point. And I think I maybe hit a big forehand to win it. And I looked in his direction. Didn't know who it was exactly. Yeah. But I looked in his direction. It got loud. I don't remember exactly what I said. It probably wasn't the nicest. <laughs> probably but, not. But that get that juice, that energy is something you can't – we don't have in tennis. Like, we don't, we don't have – we have that maybe – Maybe the French crowds at Roland Garros for French players. Maybe for the opponent. Like, if I were to play you at Roland Garros on one of the, uh, the side courts when the stands are packed and everyone's kind of going against. Maybe that's the closest thing. Because in the U.S., man, you can be in America. I played Christian Garand one year, and there were Chilean fans starting chants that were allowed. Yeah, South and I American go, allowed. I was yeah. like, well, we're, I thought we were in the U.S. here, you know. So yeah. we don't really get that, that feeling of kind of going against a crowd that much. Yeah, and I, I wish we did because yeah, honestly, yeah. like okay, playing at French with the crowd with you is great. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's not, but I also really enjoy being on the other side. Yeah, like it just fires me up. You know, you have that kind of feeling like okay, you want to see me go down? Yeah, I'll, I'll show you. I'm I'll not going you. to. You know, I'll show and, you exactly. And I really, I really enjoy that. And I, I mean, I think there's so many videos about guys shooting three, shooting free throws or whatever in the NBA, and you see fans in the back like, you know, behaving. Yeah, and you're like okay, you still have to come up with. A clutch shot or something. Yeah, and I just wish we had a bit more of that in tennis. But I feel like there's a lot of guys that wouldn't like that. No, uh, you wouldn't you're, want to take that. You are a thousand percent right. But I do think that if it becomes more of the norm, everyone will they adjust. Will have to, get we'll used have to, to, it. to adjust yeah. because you can take guys who have been some of the most accomplished ITF juniors who have been playing in big courts maybe their entire lives. They then go and adapt to college, and they get in that situation where. People are cheering for three courts while you're getting ready to serve. You you naturally adapt. You figure it out. There's obviously going to be resistance. I'm sure players are going to be like, what is this? Why are all everyone's going nuts? They're face painting. They're screaming. There's chants. What is this? But when you kind of get used to it, similar to what you say, it begins to get fun, especially when the yeah, crowd exactly. is against you because yeah. there's a lot of basketball players or f- football players will tell stories that go similar to what you said. Yes, it's always nice to have the crowd with you. But when you can silence an opposing crowd, it's they always say it's the best feeling yeah. in the world. I mean, look at Steph Curry in the game. I think it was game four. Yeah. Everyone was going at, at Draymond. Yeah. And, he, and he got super emotional. And you could have, I don't know him, but you could have that outside feeling like, okay, you want to go at my team? I'll, 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 I'll back him up. And I think in that game, if I'm not mistaken, Steph had an insane first quarter where I think he made two or three consecutive threes, something like that. And he goes back down court. And he starts talking to the fans. Yeah. Draymond Correct. said later, he goes, Steph never talks to fans. So when he saw Steph do that in the first quarter, he knew it was going to be a special night. And I think that was the night that he went absolutely bonkers. So yeah, exactly. But if you didn't have that hostility crowd, that night wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't it have wouldn't been as electric. It wouldn't exactly. have been as magical. If everyone's like, like, hey, good, good luck, Steph. Good luck, Draymond. We're Boston fans, but we want to see you do well. You, 
Yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah, Whatever. Yeah. You move on. But, but like, like when they're saying like, no, Aisha can't cook. F Draymond. The, like they're yeah, saying stuff that gets you going. That that it brings out is what makes it memorable. Yes. You know, and uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but a couple of days ago there was. Uh, Ernest Gobis that was playing against a French guy. Okay, I so didn't I, see I, it. I don't have the whole story about what happened during the match, but they probably got into some kind of argument. That sounds about and right. And at some point, Gobis won a point and went to his chair and screamed, come on, like looking at the French guy's face. And he got a warning for that. And I mean, okay, that's a bit provocative, but if you're going to cut that, then how do you want the crowd to be a bit, you know, hostile yeah. or talk shit or... That's never gonna happen. Right. If if you're not even allowed to, you know, look at the guy in the face and say, "Hey, I'm right here." Yeah. Where are you going? Yeah. hundred percent. Because it's kind of what it means. It's not just about the come on. It's about yeah. like you want to pick a fight. I'm right here. hundred percent. And then if you're gonna ban that, I mean, I don't like that. Yeah, especially said giving an actual formal warning. It's like now if he, you know, hits a ball out, you telling me you're taking a point because of that. I yeah. think we even talked about a match that you had where you were kind of given an unfair warning and yeah. ended up causing you to get broke. It's just kind of like over nothing. It's like no, we that 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 tension of of what you you similar to the uh, the the Curious City Pops match in Wimbledon. That was one of the most high quality matches I had ever seen. Exactly. But what made me even more intrigued was the drama surrounding it. Was you can argue whether or not, you know, Nick is in the right or Stefanos was in the right hitting the ball. We can argue who's right and who's wrong. But at the end of the day, that was one of the most exciting matches because the tennis, the level was high. There was clearly some friction there. And I think both guys wanted to win so bad. And it makes for a great, I mean, at the end of the day, we're producing a product. It's entertainment. Exactly. That made for great entertainment and it was a great product all around. Exactly. And take a, j just a look at me or you, like, you know the feeling when you go onto a court and let's say you start losing or not playing great and everything is just smooth, people are clapping and you're like, nah, sometimes, you know, you don't have, have it in you to yeah. fight it through or something. Yeah, yeah. And on that same day, if the guy starts picking at you or something, it can just change everything. A hundred percent, man. The, the desire to beat that guy—it changes. It changes. Or you get everything. a bad call, or you get a. Uh, for me in college, because we obviously we call our own lines in college, and the champions that are overall. I've had those matches where I kind of was half in, half out. One little thing kind of sets you off, whether that's a bad line call, whether that's an opposing the opposing coach doing little gamesmanship type things, and you're kind of like, 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 really? Is that it? For me, little things like that can kind of set me off to the point where I can hit a zone where it's like, and my game style is big, is big serve, quick points, whatever. I, you know, if I give a couple points because I'm up 40 love or down, whatever. But when I get in that mode, I don't want to give you a thing for free. Exactly. I am completely locked in and it makes for, like I say, it makes for a better product. Exactly. Yeah. And during those times is where the match gets really intense and both players compete really hard and not because... Of tennis. Yes, yes, it's, it's completely, yeah, at, that that it's that point it's pride. At that point it's pride. Is that why I want to show this guy he is not better than me. Exactly. He is not, and, and like you say, it, it, tennis is, we'll figure the tennis part out later, but I'm going to just show you I am, I am that guy. And, exactly. and you are not that guy. And then at the end, whoever wins, hopefully they shake hands, they walk off, they say, you know what, too good today, I'll see you next time. Yeah, exactly. And then you get but right back to To me it. on court, we should allow a bit more in the culture to go Head to head, and then oh, you want to fight? I'm right here. Yeah, where are you gonna go? And yeah. then after the game, like because if it becomes more of a normal thing, then people are gonna be able to separate the two. Exactly. They can go from the court and say, "He got me today." Exactly. You know what? I Whatever. In the beginning, it's gonna be a little. It's gonna, you probably won't practice with that person, for, you know, for the next yeah, couple because days. People are not used to that. Yeah. And I remember I played Borna Gojo, uh, who's here a couple of years ago in Aptos. Yeah. And he had a bit of a, you know, 
let's say, lousy attitude or whatever, and we got into it. But to me, it was like on the court. I, d I don't like what you're doing. I'll say it to your face. I'm not going to bitch about it behind your back or right. something. I got a problem with you. I'll take it, I'll take it up with you. Right. And we got into it during the match, and, and then he ended up winning deep in the third or something. But after that, shook hands, and we had dinner the next day, and yeah. then we – and it, it's fine. Yeah. Like, there's nothing wrong about – Playing hard and, and being and, competitive, and competing hard yes. during the match—it yes. doesn't make you a bad person. The sportsmanship idea of uh, you don't uh, have to, hey, to be all hey, nice and smiles to uh, be. A, to, to, they hit on. a good shot, you know. You should like no, like I don't care if he hit a good shot. It, I'm gonna say in that moment for those hours, it wasn't a good shot. He got yeah. lucky, you know. And obviously, there's a certain level of respect. Like I play there's matches in, 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 in which people will, you hit a good shot and they act as if it was the luckiest thing in the world. Like okay. Now you're, you're acting like I'm not a professional tennis player. Like, come on now. So I, yeah. I do think that there is a there, there's nuance to it. But at the same time, we got to try it out first and figure it out. Exactly. We got to get out here and say, you know what? Let's let these guys kind of go to war a little bit. Let's let the chair fires back out. out. Now, yeah. obviously, as long as it's not causing any harm to anybody watching or anyone on the court, that's fine. But let's let these guys, if they chirp a little bit, I'm going to stay. If I'm the chair fire, I'm going to stay back happen. a little bit. Yeah. And, I, and I'm just going to, you know, see what happens, make sure it doesn't get excessive but, but makes, sure makes that, for some very good tennis I'll exactly yeah, i'm sure that would bring some intense competition some intense games and so some some even better level every once in a while 100 percent, 100 percent. enzo this was an absolute pleasure i'm sure we're probably going to keep talking about this even one off when the these, record yeah, yeah when these mics get off i have a couple <laughs> stories i'll drop to you in a second but uh right. thank you so much for taking the time out we actually have a doubles match later today yeah. uh quarters here in indy so hoping to be able to come out with the win. But even nonetheless, man, you're you're an incredible tennis player. You're an incredible person. And thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with us here. And I hope everyone who's listening kind of begins to follow you and sees, you know, your personality and that you're definitely somebody who's worth cheering for. So thank you so much. Thanks so a lot I for that. Thanks it. a lot for everything. Uh, it, was, it was a real pleasure to be with you here and a bit later on on, on doubles court, obviously. And I'll shoot my shots. If ever, if if everyone has tickets, my Instagram is <laughs> if, free. If, if no one finds shoot, them, I'll be shoot me a message. If no one finds them, I will call everybody in Atlanta, Atlanta to try to grab some Hawks tickets around the Knoxville Challenger time. All right. So there sounds we go. good. You got a deal. Thank sounds you so good. much. Thanks a lot, man. So appreciate Thank it. You. Take care. The show might be over, but the conversation isn't. Join us on social media at NoahRubin33, at MikeCTennis, and at Behind the Racket. Expect new episodes every Monday or Tuesday. And don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes. It really helps us expand and reach more listeners as we take you Behind the Racket. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com.